gospel to me this morning. It is so powerful and so encouraging to, to be here and to gather together and to, to hear the gospel and to pray the gospel and to preach the gospel. And so if you're a visitor with us today, uh, I'm glad you're here. And uh, my name is Nate, one of the pastors here. I've got the unique and great privilege of opening up God's word this morning. So if you would open up your Bibles to Exodus chapter 17, we have been walking through the book of Exodus, and for some time now, we're not even close to being all the way through, we've got a ways to go, but today we are in Exodus chapter 17, looking at verses 8 through 16, and where we're at right now is that the Israelites, they've been freed from slavery in Egypt, and they've slowly been working their way towards Mount Sinai, where they're going to receive the Ten Commandments. And along the way, God's been testing them. He's been putting these trials in front of them. And in fact, these trials are, are severe. These trials are life-threatening, but God has done that for a reason. He, he's doing it to expose their lack of faith and help teach them to really trust in Him, that He will provide, He will save, He will do everything necessary to bring them to the promised land. And so the first test that they faced was they landed in this place where there was no water. And so God has Moses throw a tree into the body of water and it turned the water from bitter to sweet. And it should remind us of Jesus, right? That he was hung on a tree and he turned what was bitter sweet. And then the second trial that they faced was a lack of food. And so God does the, a miracle, and he, he sends manna down from heaven to pro provide salvation for them. And again, this should remind us of, of Jesus, who calls himself the bread of life, who came down from heaven to provide salvation to us. And then the third trial that we talked about last week, again, they landed in a place where there was no water. And so this time God causes water to come out of a rock. And Paul, in the New Testament, says that that rock was Christ. And Jesus, numerous on numerous occasions, he talks about this living water that he would provide that people would never get thirsty again from. And so, in these tests, we, we've seen over and over God's wise provision. And we've also seen them point to Christ. But we've also seen the Israelites grumble. And complain. And they, like us, they are slow to trust. They are slow to learn. They've accused Moses of trying to murder them. They have questioned God. Their morale is low. Moses has even feared that they're about to stone him. And so that brings us to today's passage. And they're going to face a fourth trial here where the, um, uh, they're going to be attacked by the Amalekites. And I want you to consider the situation here. These are not hardened soldiers, right? Okay, you're going into armed warfare and put yourself in their shoes. I mean, you're you're a refugee. You're you, you're pretty homeless. You're uh, ex-slaves, and you're going up to battle these battle-tested desert dwellers, and you're on their turf. And your number one guy, as we'll see in the story, Moses, isn't going to join you on the battlefield at all. 
he's going to go up on the hill with a stick. <laughs> and so you can imagine, I mean, how do you like your odds, right? Now, again, this is not by accident. God is positioning his people here to teach them something about himself. And he's teaching us something about himself, too. And so let's pray that God would help us to discern what that would be. Father, help us to trust you. Remind us of your mercy. Grant us, really, eyes to see your glory. Help us to, to rest in your provision. And help us to strive, not under our own power, but in your power. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, pick up with me in verse 8. Then Amalek came and fought with Israel at Rephidim. And so Moses said to Joshua, Choose for us men and go out and fight with Amalek. Tomorrow I will stand on top of the hill with the staff of God in my hand. And so Joshua did as Moses told him, and he fought with Amalek while Moses and Aaron and Hur went up to the mountain or to the top of the hill. Whenever Moses held up his hand, Israel prevailed, and whenever he lowered his hand, Amalek prevailed. But Moses, his hands grew weary, and so they took a stone, they put it under him, and he sat on it, and while Aaron and Hur held up his hands, one on one side and the other on the other side, so his hands were steady until the going down of the sun. And Joshua overwhelmed Amalek and his people with the sword. Then the Lord said to Moses, Write this as a memorial in a book and recite it in the ears of Joshua, that I will utterly blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. And Moses built an altar and called the name of it, The Lord is my banner, saying, A hand upon the throne of the Lord, the Lord will have war with Amalek from generation to generation. All right, so here's the outline of this text and where I'm going to be going with the sermon. Verses 8 through 10, we're going to see the, the preparation for the battle. Verses 11 through 13, we're going to see the battle. And verses 14 through 16, we're going to see the aftermath. And so let's break that down. First of all, verses 8 through 10, this is the preparation. We need to ask the question, okay, who are the Amalekites, right? Who are these people? And there's actually a lot of debate on this. Uh, you can get deep into the weeds that perhaps this was like a clan of giants. And I don't have time to go into arguments for that right now. What I do see in scripture right now is that Genesis 36 says that they're a descendant of Esau. And so these are like cousins of the Israelites. Amalek was the son of Esau, his firstborn. The Amalekites would become enemies of the Israelites throughout pretty much the whole Old Testament. Uh, Saul was actually commanded to wipe them out, but he disobeyed God. And so David ends up having to face them several times. And all the way towards the end of the Old Testament, in the book of Esther, there's a man not, uh, by the name of Haman who has this evil plot to destroy and wipe out all the Jewish people. And what we find out is that he is actually uh, a descendant of one of the kings of the Amalekites. And so at the end of that story, uh, his plan to wipe him out fails, and he ends up getting killed along with his whole family, and that's the end of the Amalekites. Now, in Deuteronomy, we learn a little bit more. Moses gives us a few more details about what's going on here in our passage in Exodus 17. In Deuteronomy 25, 
Verses 17 and 18, we read this. Uh, God says to, to Moses, Remember what Amalek did to you along the way when you came out of Egypt, and how he met you along the way and attacked you and attacked among you all the stragglers at your rear who were faint and weary. And so this attack by the Amalekites, it wasn't like a frontal attack. It wasn't a military battle. It was an assault upon the stragglers, the, those who were falling behind, the weak, the vulnerable. That's who they were attacking, which I think this is why, or one of the reasons why God has so much disdain for the Amalekites, right? Also, notice in our passage today, this is our first reference in the Bible to Joshua. Up until this point, we haven't heard anything uh, about him in the text, and, and yet Moses appoints Joshua to attack the Amalekites. And, and we'll find out later that, that Joshua, he's the son of Nun, he would, he's the tribe chief, he's Moses' right-hand man, he's really like an apprentice, he's the designated successor of Moses, and we see here that he's the military general. If you read the book of Joshua, you can see uh, a lot more of his military exploits. But one thing I want to point out here is the difference between what we see here in Exodus chapter 70, 17 and what we saw back in Exodus chapter 14. So in Exodus chapter 14, if you recall, the Israelites were trapped between the Red Sea and the Egyptian army, right? And Moses says to them, fear not, stand firm, and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall never see again. The Lord will fight for you, and you have only to be silent. Now compare that to what we see in today's passage. Today's passage, we see God expects the Israelites to play an active role in their defense. At the Red Sea, they had to trust God to watch him do the fighting. Now, as I said before, when we were going through that passage, it's not that they were completely passive in this. They were very active in trusting and watching and refraining from taking things into their own hands. But here, they had to trust God in a different way. They had to trust God by taking up arms and, and gathering together and fighting for themselves. And this battle, this picture that we have here in this text, it really gives us a helpful picture about how God does call us to action, and yet we are completely dependent on him to succeed in what he has called us to. So verses 11 through 13, we see the battle. And the main point of these verses of course, the main point of the sermon, the battle belongs to the Lord. The victory comes from the Lord. Uh, you can find a whole lot of sermons and, and commentaries on this passage, and it seems like everybody's got a different opinion on what the meaning of Moses standing on the hillside with his arms up. What, what does it really mean? Some will say that, well, it's pointing to the need for persistent prayer. Or, or others will say that uh, it, it's really an encouragement for us to bear one another's burdens because Moses couldn't keep his arms up by himself. Others think that Moses was simply signaling down to the soldiers to keep advancing. As long as he had his arms up, they would keep advancing. Others actually turn Moses into like this wizard kind of character where he's got this magic wand and he's sending curses down on the Amalekites. <laughs> and so there's all sorts of opinions out there, but I think if you look at the context of this text, the, the, the focus here is on the, the staff of Moses, right? The focus is on the staff. 
And the, the staff is, this is the same staff that was used last week to strike the rock. It's the same staff that was used at the Red Sea, back in the plagues. And what we have seen over and over with this staff, it's not magical, but it does act as a symbol of God's presence and God's power. And so this is what we've got going on in the scene. Moses, the Israelite, is the number one guy. Their, their leader is not on the battlefield. So the focus of this battle is actually not on the battlefield and, and what Joshua is doing there. There's no details given about that. The focus is up on the hill and specifically on the staff. As long as the staff is raised up in the air, then the, they prevail. But as soon as it lowers down, then they, they start failing. And so God is, I, think, I believe he's making it very crystal clear that the credit for this victory belongs solely to God, to him. He is the one that deserves the glory. He is the one that they should depend upon. Because see, the temptation when they win this battle is the same temptation we all face when we experience any kind of success. The temptation is to say, hey, look what I did. Look how great I am. Look what we did. Look how awesome we are. The, the, the temptation is to glorify themselves, to celebrate themselves, to honor themselves. But God is teaching them through this battle that he is the one that needs to be honored. That they can do nothing apart from him. That he is the, their source of power. That he is the one that will provide for their needs. That he is the one that they need to place their trust in. Not, they, they ought not trust in themselves to win the battle. They ought not even trust in their great leader Moses to win the battle. He was insufficient in this story. The victory, the glory belongs to the Lord alone, God alone. And remember, God is bringing them. He's bringing the Israelites out of Egypt so that he would have a people that belong to him, that would worship him. And so through these trials, what is he teaching them over and over and over? That he is worthy, and he alone is worthy of their worship. And so here's an implication of this, this battle scene. The Christian life is neither quietism or activism. Okay? Let me explain what I mean by those terms. We tend to, to always go to the extremes, okay? That's our tendency. It's always a slippery slope, and we always want to go to the extremes. So on one extreme, you've got quietism, which is the mindset of, okay, I'm just going to let go and let God. I, I'm just going to, uh, Jesus, take the wheel, right? It's an overemphasis on God's sovereignty so that we just stop striving altogether. We take no responsibility. Now, on the other extreme, we have activism, okay, which is the mindset of, okay, God helps those who help themselves, right, which is not a scripture that you find in the Bible, all right, it, it, it's an overemphasis on man's responsibility, think if we just try harder, if we just tighten up our, our bootstraps and put in the effort, then we will succeed, but in the New Testament, what do we see? We don't see either of those things, really, we, we see the Apostle Paul, who says, I worked harder than any of them. That sounds like activism, but then he, in the same breath, says, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Or he says, I can do all things 
through him who strengthens me. Or he says, for this I toil and I struggle with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. And so as Christians, yeah, we are called to a spiritual battle. No doubt about that. 1 Timothy 6.12, fight the good fight of faith. 2 Timothy 2.3, endure hardship like a good soldier of Christ Jesus. Ephesians 6.11, put on the full armor of God so that you can stand against the devil's schemes. But that does not mean that we fight alone or even in our own power. Jesus made it clear in John 15. John 15 is a, such an important passage for us to understand because that, that's the story of the, the vine and the branches. And so Jesus says, we are the branches and he is the vine. And he makes it very clear that we can do nothing apart from him. We can do nothing apart from him. He is the vine. And so if you are disconnected from the vine, you have no nutrients, you have no water, you have... That's where all the genetic material of life itself comes from, is the vine. The branches, we provide none of that. And so there is striving in the Christian life. There's a battle that we fight, but the amazing news of the gospel is that the victory has already been won on our behalf. And that is so huge for us to grasp. The power we need to live the Christian life doesn't come from within us. It comes from the Spirit given to us. And so the good news is that Jesus died the death that we deserve, but he rose and declared victory on our behalf over sin and over Satan and over death itself. And now in Christ, he declares us completely justified, which means we've been declared righteous before him, which means that we are completely forgiven of all our sins. We are completely forgiven. And right now, there is no condemnation because Jesus has risen his arms, and even now, today, he stands by the Father as an advocate, day after day, night after night, reminding us that he will never let us go. So in today's passage, just like in today's passage, the, the victory was won not because of the efforts or the might of the Israelites, but because of God and his power. When we, when we embrace this, when we embrace what Christ has declared about us, that we're completely forgiven, that we're completely right before him, that he has already paid the punishment that we deserve, that's what frees us. To strive. That's what frees us to battle. That's what empowers us through the Spirit to win the victory. It's not in us, it's nothing inside of us that wins the victory. It is Christ and His Spirit. And so the striving we do in the Christian life, listen carefully. The striving we do in the Christian life is primarily to believe the gospel. It's to believe the good news that Christ has done what he has said he has done. It's a striving to believe that the old is gone in us and that we are a new creation. It's a striving to believe that God doesn't look at us as his project, projects. He looks at us as his 
children and his friends. It's a striving to believe that God is holding us in his arms and will never let us go, that he is sanctifying us and that he will preserve us to the very end. It's a, it's a striving to truly believe that Jesus is at the right hand of God and he's advocating for us right now with his arms lifted like Moses and he never lets them down. He never lets us go. And so that means, listen carefully, it's not a striving to prove our righteousness to or, or our goodness. That is not the Christian life. The Christian life is not a striving to atone for our sin. Christ does that for us. It's not a striving after perfection. It's not a striving to get God to forgive you. It's not a striving to get God to like you. It's not a striving to get God to approve of you. You think, I think a lot of Christians, they, they look at the Christian life as primarily a striving to do Christian things, right? Like, I, I, I'm going to work really hard to, to go to church and read my Bible and evangelize and I'm going to give to the poor. I'm, I'm going to, and I'm, this is what I fall into. I'm going to gain a bunch of knowledge. I'm going to understand theology. And I, I think that's what I need to do to be to be right with God. Or, or, or I'm going to end social injustice. Okay, that's a big one today. I'm going to go out. I'm going to, that's what we're That's what it means to be a Christian. But I think the beauty of John 15, it, it really teaches us that, okay, those are fruit. That's the fruit. And we should desire those things. We should long for those things. We should want those things. But if we focus our energy primarily on the fruit and we fail to strive to trust in the vine to empower us for that fruit, it's kind of like, and we talk about this in missional community all the time, it's kind of like us trying to staple up fruit on dead branches. That fruit might look really good for a couple days, right? But if we're primarily focused on the fruit of the gospel rather than believing the gospel, what happens is one of two things. You may get really good at stapling up fruit to dead branches. And what happens there is the fruit eventually gets rotten. And rotten fruit looks a whole lot like judgmentalism because you're looking at everybody else that can't get their fruit together. <laughs> right? <laughs> They're not putting the fruit on the tree like they should. And so you start looking down on everybody else because they're just not as good at stapling up their fruit. <laughs> or you come to a point where you realize you, you're not good at stapling up fruit. <laughs> and you feel defeated and worn out and burnt out. And you just want to run from the church. Because every time you go into church, you feel like it's just another to-do list that makes you feel miserable. The good news of the gospel is it is not a striving after the fruit. It's a striving to believe what Jesus Christ has already done on your behalf. And when we do that, that's when the fruit starts going crazy. That's when the fruit multiplies and grows. 
It's when we trust in the gospel and when we strive to believe that God has already won the victory and that the battle belongs to the Lord. And as we embrace that truth, the, God, the truth of the gospel more and more, and we learn to rest in his loving embrace, then we're going to be freed up more and more to, to go to war, to strive, to fight the good fight of faith. That's when we can say, like Paul, I worked harder than any of them, though it wasn't I, but it was the grace of God that was in me. I can do all things through him who strengthens me, for I toil and struggle with all his energy, and he powerfully works within me. So we've talked about the preparation of the battle. We've talked about the battle. Now let's talk about the aftermath. Verses 14 through 16. Let me read this again because it's been a little a bit since we, we looked at it. Verse 14, Then the Lord said to Moses, Write this as a memorial in a book and recite it in the ears of Joshua that I will utterly blot out the memory of Amalek from under the heaven. And Moses built an altar and called the name of it, The Lord is my banner, saying, I, A hand upon the throne of the Lord. The Lord will have war with Amalek from generation to generation. And so like I said before, the Amalekites, they would war with Israelites through just about the whole Old Testament. And I, I want to point out a couple things from this verse, or these verses. First, notice that God commands Moses to write this down as a memorial and recite it in the ears of Joshua. From the very beginning, God's plan to reveal himself and strengthen our faith from generation to generation was the written word. There's a reason that the primary means by which God has given us to strengthen our faith and help us embrace the gospel message is the written word. It's coming on Sunday mornings and, and gathering together and hearing the gospel preached and singing the gospel to one another. It, it's done in community together. That's the primary way that God has given us to strengthen our faith. And so we see here that Moses writes it down. He, God wants to make sure that Joshua hears it. He wants to ensure his people remember his deliverance and the way that he judged the Amalekites. Notice also how Moses built an altar here, not to sacrifice an animal here, but to, to remember the victory that the Lord provided. He calls it, the Lord is my banner. And back then, a banner would be a place where they would all gather together. They, it would be a, a rallying point where they would come and they would find strength. Uh, so the Lord will have war with Amalekites from generation to generation until the day God would utterly blot him out or them out from memory from under the heavens. Now, I mentioned earlier that the last mention of the descendants of Amalek the Amalekites comes in the book of Esther. Now, Haman, who headed out for the Jews, he was the descendant of Agag, the, the king of the Amalekites. And to celebrate his plan to destroy the Jews, or to celebrate that plan failing, the Jews actually started up a new festival, and they called it the Feast of Purim. And they still actually, many of them will celebrate this even today. It's a celebration of the deliverance that is detailed in the book of Esther. And on Purim, they will read out loud in the synagogues the book of Esther. But what's really interesting is that every time the name Haman comes up in the text, they start making all sorts of noise and drown out the name. 
They, they have these noisemakers that are called groggers, or, or they can take anything like alarm clocks, they'll pop balloons, sirens, little toys, whistles, whatever they could, because they don't want to hear that name. And symbolically, they are celebrating God has blotted out the memory of the Amalekites, and that anyone who opposes God's people will face the same fate. Now, ironically, if we're honest, all of us deserve to be blotted out. We all deserve, like the Amalekites, to be erased. But the good news is that Jesus, like Moses, raised his arms. And he said, I will make a people that are not my people, my people. I will make you my people. He raises his arms and he declares salvation to a weak and a vulnerable people, which is us. And then in Revelations 3.5, he proclaims that all those who have conquered or been victorious will never be blotted out of the book of life. And thank goodness that victory does not depend on me, but it depends fully on Christ who raised his arms on our behalf. Thank goodness it depends on his faithfulness because the battle belongs to the Lord. Amen? So communion, what is it? It's a victory celebration, right? We celebrate every single Sunday the victory that Christ accomplished on our behalf. And so Jesus has declared with his arms up, it is finished. It is paid in full. Your sins, your debts, have been erased. And so if you're a believer today, I'd encourage you to join in this celebration with us. Let's pray. Father, thank you so 